I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Friday, February 7th, 2020, and this is episode 54 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is that we went to see the Oscar-nominated short films, the live-action films. Um, and this is something that we, my husband and I, have done over the, over the years. So we live in Maryland, and in D.C., at the National Archives, they usually show them for free. But um, we tend to miss that because I forget what the, the date is. I thought it was – well, I guess the Oscars are always like – in my mind, it was in March, but that's not, that doesn't make any sense. So for several years, we would go down there and they sell, it's free, but you have to line up like an hour or two in advance. So drive down to DC, find a place to park, uh, go to the National Archives. And um, I think they showed both live action and animated. I'm not sure, but I'm much more interested in the live action anyway. So there are certain movie theaters that show them. And so we went down to Bethesda to the independent movie theater there and we saw them. Um, when I first found out you could watch them, it was because I think somebody that I knew, because I was a film student, had, was like several years ago, I was a film student in college. And several years ago, someone I knew had been um, on the crew of one of the Oscar-nominated shorts. So I was like, oh, let's go, let's go watch them. And to my surprise, my husband really enjoyed it. Now, when we first got together, I was still making films. I was still um, doing the 48-hour the film project every year. And he was super involved in that. We did that for five or six years in different cities. And when we moved back to Maryland, we actually stopped because logistically it got tough. But anyway, so as I record this, the Oscars are this weekend. When this podcast comes out, you already know the winners. I'm rooting for either uh, there was a Belgian film called A Sister, Monsieur, and um, that and the one Brotherhood, which was... I feel like it took place in Tunisia and the country that it's from might have been, it was, it was a, a co-production between like a European country and a Middle Eastern country. And I can't remember which ones, but brotherhood and a sister were my two favorite ones. There was an American one called the neighbor's window, which I also really liked, but I felt like it was a little bit more on the nose. And then the other two movies that were nominated with my, my least favorite. So yeah, we'll see if one of my favorites will win. The ones that I really, the, the, the top, my top two, were both very powerful and kind of heart-wrenching. And I can definitely see why they were nominated. The um, My least favorite two were the Nefta Football Club and Saria. And uh, they were interesting. I guess Nefta Football Club was the only one that wasn't overtly sad. <laughs> but it just didn't have the weight of the other of the other films. Anyway, if you get a chance, um, Shorts, Shorts TV will show them. Um, I say it's shorts.tv and they'll, they'll be streaming within a couple of weeks. So I think you'll be able to see them on like Amazon prime and stuff. So yeah, I, I always have a good time um, watching them. They're always interesting. They make me miss filmmaking a little bit. I don't miss it that much, but uh, I don't plan to watch the Oscars, but I will definitely look and see who won after they announce it. Oh, I have an announcement. I am part of an anthology that is having a Kickstarter. So the anthology is called Where the Veil is Thin, and it's fairy stories. Um, it's co-edited by one of my very good friends, Cerise Rennie Murphy, and she asked me to be a part of it. And so I wrote a fairy story that I love, and I hope everyone gets to read. It's not connected to any 
thing that I've written, that I've published before, but I do have plans to continue this world, this fairy world. Actually, if you, if you get on my newsletter, the first free short story that I send is a fairy story that is in this fairy world. So I'm very, very slowly creating an anthology of, of fairies, my own um, collection of fairy stories that I want to do, but my version of fairies. So yeah, I'll link to the Kickstarter in the show notes. It's got um, stories by Seanan McGuire, C.S.E. Cooney, Alethea Contes, Carlos Hernandez, and some other great writers. Zinni Rocklin, who um, was responsible for bringing me up to the Brooklyn Book Festival last year. So yeah, just a really great anthology, and I'm really excited about it. Um, and it's been a long time in the making, so... Give it some support on Kickstarter if you get the chance and definitely check out the link. Also, I've been reading slash listening to the audiobook of, I think there needs to be like a word for that, but anyway, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I've heard a lot of people talking about it. It was one of the books that I, I had reserved at the library and finally came, you know, came up. And since it's nonfiction, I can, yeah, I don't have to be in the mood to listen to nonfiction. It's really, really good. All the recommendations are really on point, and I'm towards the end of it. What really stuck out to me so far is him talking about habits um, and how it relates to the person that you are. So, you know, I am the type of person that um, gets up early, that exercises regularly. You know, you can can set a goal. Part of it that I'd heard before was, you know – systems over goals. Like um, people put a lot of emphasis on goal setting, but in the book, he's like, well, you know, successful people and unsuccessful people set goals. We tend to only look at the successful people and be like, oh, they set this goal and they made it. We don't look at all the people who set, who set the same goals and didn't make it. So what separates them? And that's systems. So the idea is to focus on systems as opposed to goals and creating, you know, reproducible methods to um, to do the actions that you want to do. And the idea that sort of telling yourself, okay, I am an organized person. What do organized people do? They make their beds, they clean their houses, they wash their dishes every day, whatever these habits are that you want to have. Start thinking about yourself as the type of person who does that. And then, you know, there's all kinds of other strategies that you can um, take to actually do the habits. But what really spoke to me the most was just changing your self-talk. You know, like if you say, oh, I'm a messy person, I'm a pack rat, I don't want to be, we'll start changing your self-talk. So like, well, I'm an organized person and I will do the things that organized people do. I'm a writer, so I write every day. I mean, it, it really spoke to me because when I made the change, Stephen Pressfield calls it going pro. And, um, and it's before I was ever published, but deciding that I was a writer and I'm going to finish books and finish things and publish them, it made all the difference in the world. And I think, you know, a lot of people who want to be writers get stuck. Uh, I have a good friend, you know, I talked about her before, who she's not sure if she is going to finish her book. And I think it's a wonderful book. I really hope she finishes it. But there's a point at which you change your self-talk, where you have to be like, going from, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I can't imagine doing this. I just don't have the time. I'm so tired. To, I'm a writer. And what type of activities do writers do? They write. If they can't write every day, they prioritize it among their activities and then they get it done. And that's really the only way that it happens. Yeah, I I definitely recommend Atomic Habits. Just, 
you know, even if you don't go through all the uh, exercises and I haven't even gotten to most of them yet, the, the sort of mindset stuff I think is really interesting and helpful. And um, I'm doing this 29 day challenge that I saw in Austin Cleon's newsletter. And basically you just pick a thing that you want to do and you do it every day in February. So 29 days in a row, there's a little uh, a chart that I print out and I X off each day. And it actually is very fulfilling because the chart is black and white and I chose a red Sharpie and I X out each day. And it's just like, yes, I see the X, don't break the chain. And at the end, you pick, pick a thing that you're going to get. So my, um, my 29, 29 day challenge is to do some sort of exercise every day whether it's going to the gym, going to the climbing gym, um, working out downstairs, we have like a rowing machine, an elliptical, or just doing 15 minutes of yoga. Like that's the base minimum of what will count. And yeah, days, well, it's Friday morning right now. Uh, I haven't exercised yet, but I exercised for six days in a row. I did something and I've X'd off my boxes and because I want to be a healthy writer and I want to have energy and I want to be strong and regain my strength and, you know, all of these things that I want. And I also have to battle against the inertia and the laziness that come. So at the end of the month, <laughs> my goal, it says, after 29 days, I get, and you fill in the blank. And I filled in a cheesecake because I'm going to buy a cheesecake, like a small cheesecake. But I... I I love cheesecake. So that is my goal. And it's going well so far. I haven't broken the chain yet. It's going to be difficult um, because towards the end of the month is my agency retreat. And it's always hard to exercise when you are away at a hotel. But by that time, it'll be like 20, 22 days in. And I hope to have a, an unbroken chain that I will not want to break definitely when I'm down there. So I'm sure the hotel has a gym. I will just have to take my butt in there every day that I'm there. Or just do some yoga in the room. I mean, that's that counts. But I think it'll probably be better to force myself to go to the hotel gym. Writing update. I am moving through. Um, it's still going well. I'm feeling the time crunch and looking at how much I have left to do and how long I have scheduled it for. Um, and I'm not feeling great about that. So my goal has been to get it to beta readers by March 8th. And I was going to split it up and send them act one and two like a week or two before and then and finish up act three and send it by March 8th. The problem is that the second half of the book is always so much worse than the first half. Because by when I'm doing my fast draft, like it's not even a fast draft. It's like a few sentences sometimes for the scenes. Like this just happens. You know, usually my fast draft is the bones, the skeleton of a scene. But all of Act 3 is just like vague notions because of my process, because I don't know, even in the fast draft, um, exactly what's going to happen. And I, and I know a lot of the stuff I've written up until that point has been wrong. So I don't want to spend a lot of time fast drafting because I know it's not even going to be worth it. Um, but that means that when I hit the second half of Act 2 in the manuscript, it requires a lot more work. And of course, you're always at the end. Like by the time you get to the end of the book, you're at the end of the deadline or you're getting towards it. And um, and time is looking time is looking grim. So March 8th is, you know, about one month before I turn it in. 
So there is technically time to push back if I don't have anyone else read it. And I was thinking again about um, what I talked about last week and listening to how Jeffy Kennedy writes her book in two months. I think it also is different if you know that when you turn it in, you are going to get an edit. I think that not knowing if I'm going to get an edit means I have to turn in something that is polished and ready to go to copy edits. And so I don't know how everyone else works with their editors and their publishing houses, but if I could turn in something that was a little less polished, knowing I would have another pass at it, that's a different story. For me, that's not what happens. And so whatever I turn in has to be just like ready to go to press almost. Um, so yeah, that's, that's another thing that why you can't really compare yourself to other people because every relationship and every kind of publishing process is a little bit different. It would make me feel better to have other eyes on this that say, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. You know, um, I have questions about this. That's incredibly helpful because I'm in my head and there is no time for to take a step back and come back with fresh eyes. As I look at my schedule, um, I just don't know. Similar to this. So with Cry of Metal and Bone, book three, the last thing that I basically turned in, I did have some changes that I that I made in copy edits. So the I should say the book had been copy edited. It was given back to me to review. And that's when I made some biggish changes. Like I moved a chapter around, I rewrote all the epigraphs, I did a couple of other things. So not like huge, huge changes, but things that I would have preferred to have done before copy edits, but that's just not how the schedule worked out. One thought I've had is just to give it to beta readers at the same time I send it to my editor. And then if they tell me something that I feel is, um, you know, I need to address, and that's something that my editor may or may not say, then I can hit it in copy edits. It just makes me so uncomfortable because the style sheet is actually wrong. So, um, the, the, the novella that I'm self-publishing, Hush of Storm and Sorrow, I hired a copy editor. She's actually the same editor that I used when I was self-publishing Ersinger Chronicles. So she knows the stories, at least the original versions. And so she does a style sheet. I sent her my St. Martin style sheets for books one through three. And I don't think I actually sent her the style sheet for the first novella, which I should have. The problem was that I had forgotten to update the style sheet that the copy editor gave me with the changes I made post copy edits. And my freelance editor combined all the style sheets, which was great. Like, I didn't know she was going to do that, but it makes it so much easier, especially writing book four, when there's one document I can go to that has the most updated stuff. Only I still had to go and update it based on my changes. Um, so I did that this week. And I'm going to send that to St. Martin's so that they have the most updated version. Because I actually changed a character's name. I realized after copy edits that his name was too similar to another character. His last name was too similar to someone else's first name. Those people never were together, but I thought that it might cause some confusion. And uh, I went back to the style sheet reviewing the second novella um, because there was my editor, my freelance editor picked up on the fact that I had named another character an almost identical name. Now these are very minor characters, but you know, someone with eagle eyes might be like, oh, is that the same person? Because they have the same name and they're not the same person at all. And so I don't want to have any confusion about that, which is why style sheets are wonderful. I do maintain a story Bible that uh, I try to keep updated, but it never is completely updated. Like, 
in theory, after copy edits, I would go back and update my story Bible and and uh, change all the names and make sure it all corresponds. In practice, it just doesn't happen that way. So, I mean, usually my story Bible is like 80, 85% correct, but whatever changes I make at the last minute might not get put in there. For instance, and, and, and when you have as many versions of the, as many books as I have, it's confusing. So I had um, Jack's mother had a name and you never see her in this, in the series. She's off somewhere else, but in a version of the book, they mentioned her name. I took that out and then reused that name for someone completely different. The story Bible still was like, oh, his mother's name is this. And I was like, oh, I don't, I didn't remember that because it was like three years ago and who knows. But, um, you know, in book three, I reused that name. And so with this combined style sheet, I was able to realize that and be like, oh, okay. Well, the only place Jack's mother's name exists is in my notes. So I just removed it. And she doesn't really need a name because you don't ever learn it. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll just give her another name in my mind. I don't know. So it's stuff like that, you know, series management. And especially when I'm doing one series with a traditional publisher and self-publishing stuff inside of it, things can fall through the cracks. And also, you know, I love having the same copy editor who has been working on the books to some degree, but she has style sheets from the originals. There was just a, there was just a lot of confusion in this combined style sheet, but I did I went through it one day and I cleaned it all up. Um, because I was looking for a new name and I realized in my story bible of my have a, I maintain a list of unused names, but some of them were actually used because I hadn't updated the story bible. Uh I hope this makes sense. I feel like I'm rambling and like belaboring this point, but it was a lot of brain space for me this week, like dealing with this and um, having the style sheet actually saved my life, even though I had to fix it. It was like, I love that it's there. And I love that every name of every character in the series is now in one place in one word file. Speaking of which, I found a new gray hair right in the front of my head. It's like new growing. So it's short and it's right, right above my widow's peak. <laughs> And my husband was like, why don't you just pluck it? And I'm like, no, no, I earned that gray hair. <laughs> I only have a few. Like, um, my father grayed very late. Um, he passed when he was 62, and he just had a handful of gray hairs. Maybe more than a handful, but he wasn't anywhere close to all gray. Um, I think my mother grayed early because of stress. So I, I look at, I notice each one when it comes in, basically. And um, I was like, oh, I'm sure this gray hair in the front is because of this book. I'm 100% sure. One more thing. I found out that Song of Blood and Stone was listed in this Bustle article about books to read in honor of the new doctor, the new Doctor Who, who is a black woman. And uh, that was really cool. I had seen a tweet about the new doctor being black, and I just didn't believe it. I didn't click on it. I was like, this is, this is not real. I don't believe it. <laughs> Apparently, it is real, which is awesome. I stopped watching Doctor Who in the early Peter Capaldi era, like I watched a few of his episodes and then I just kind of filtered away. You know, Christopher Eccleston actually is my favorite doctor. It's a very, very unpopular view, but I mean, I really like Matt Smith. Um, what's his name? Scottish dude. I can't remember his name now. David Tennant. I was looking it up and thinking at the same time. David Tennant was fine. Uh, Peter Capaldi, I guess he was okay. He didn't bother me. I just kind of, I don't know. I just lost interest. Um, but I guess I will turn in when it's a black woman doctor. But I found out about the article on awario.com. 
So it's another plug, especially if you're traditionally published and um, you would like to know when people are talking about you or your books. Awareio.com is a service that is sort of like Google Alerts, but it actually works because I literally never get the Google Alert. I've had it been signed up for like 10 years. And then there was another article, like a NetGalley blog article that listed my book for like Black History Month. And those are really cool. And so, you know, if, if it's a thing that your publicist didn't create, like didn't, um, wasn't responsible for, it was just a journalist or a writer somewhere creating these lists, then, you know, they're not going to know. So I sent the links to them too. Um, so yeah, it's really cool to see it out there. And then a couple of my friends have been um, sending me pictures of the book on bookshelves. My friend Lisa sent it from Las Vegas where she found the books. And then my brother someplace in LA, I guess it was on the shelves. So that's always cool to see. I got my royalty reports uh, from Macmillan a couple days ago. I'm close to earning out on Song Funstone. Maybe another year, I think, if the sales go. And I think as book three, when book three comes out, more people will buy book one. And then when book four comes out, it's also really interesting because now my agent told me this. And I mean, I believed her, but it didn't make any sense to me that, especially in science fiction and fantasy, people don't buy ebooks. And according at least to the royalty reports, that's really true. Like coming from self publishing, where it's all ebooks all the time, it's like, why? I don't, I mean, Okay, it was thirteen or fourteen dollars for the Kindle. Like, yes, I get why no one, would, only a handful of people would buy that. But it is it is interesting when you when you look at the numbers, like you look at what the bookstore ordered, and then you see all the negatives of when they send it back, um, and then you see the the ebook orders. You're like, wait, what? I, I don't remember the number, but it was like whatever period that the royalty report covered, it was like less than two hundred. But there were good sales on the paperbacks. And it's just like, is this accurate? Is this actually real? <laughs> but I mean, traditional publisher at uh, traditional publishers are less invested in selling ebooks. They have the relationships with the the print bookstores, which is why you want to go with a traditional publisher. And yeah. And I mean I mean, I remember sitting down with my agent and she'd be like, Yeah, this book, she had a book that hit the New York Times that I mean it sold probably around the same amount, like 200 ebooks or something like that. And you're like, wow, just, it's just interesting. It's just one of those things that you don't know about publishing that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but I guess it does because they price the ebook so high. And, you know, if you're going to look at a $14.99 ebook versus a $2.99 self-published ebook, right. And for someone you've never heard of, who is like not super famous, like, why are you going to spend that much money on it? I get it. And they keep the prices high to keep the bookstores happy. And I get it. Um, and so then when you look at the royalty reports and they're like, I sold negative 45 ebooks, which is not a thing, but I guess it could be if you get enough returns. But yeah, interesting. So I hope you have a wonderful week and I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the footnotes newsletter, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're a visual learner, watch the video episodes on YouTube. I would really love a rating or review to help support the show. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts. <laughs>